We're going to now go into the teaching portion of our of our meeting, um, and we're continuing our series in the life of Joseph, um, which we've been in for some time. We're going to be working out of Genesis chapter 44. So if you've got a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry at all. Um, I'll be reading it out as we go, and we'll even have some of it on the screen um, partway through. We've been in this Joseph series for a few weeks now, um, but we've the last couple of weeks, um, we have been moving our focus away from Joseph himself and onto Joseph's family. Um, and looking at what we have, what well, I have been calling um, God's great reunion project, how God has been, as we've moved the attention away from, from jo Joseph, as he's been separated from his family to the family itself, we're seeing how God is working through his sovereign, powerful hand to bring the family back together um, in his, uh, and transform them and change them along the way. Just a little bit of recap for us. Um, we are in a time of intense famine at the moment, so a world disaster, um, which is not unlike the situation that we find ourselves in right now. Um, and the, the focus of the story has been, there's this man, Jacob, and he has 12 sons, one of which is, is Joseph. And Joseph was sold off into slavery 22 years ago now by his uh, 10 of his 11 other brothers, Benjamin being the one that wasn't involved. So 10 of his brothers sold him off into slavery. And they they thought that they would never see him again. They thought that he was dead and they still think that he's dead at this point in the narrative. But what they've had to do is go to Egypt as the only place that has food in order to, to get grain to take home with them. And little did they know, and this is the dramatic tension that we've been living in the last couple of weeks, that Joseph, when he sees the brothers come to buy grain, Joseph recognises his brothers as his brothers, but the brothers do not recognise Joseph. They just think that he's some important, noble government official in Egypt. But Joseph is this high-powered, second-in-command to Pharaoh uh, official within Egypt, and he's been promoted through that, and we saw God's hand working to make him into that position and last week we saw how the brothers shared this extravagant banquet with Joseph that Joseph opened up his dining hall to to bless his brothers and we might think well surely that is the end of this this little moment of Joseph hiding who he was that from immediately from this he is gonna tell us tell them who he is um, but today the the, um, the the title of the message is making a savior and in the next 25 minutes or so, we are going to have a front row seat at a staggering inner transformation of one of Joseph's brothers that will then lead to one of the greatest acts of love. And so we're going to pick up the, the narrative now in verse one of chapter 44, just after this extravagant meal that Joseph has held. So verse one to five. Then he commanded the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. So this is Joseph talking to his steward. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. So this is the brothers being sent away on their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not that th is it not this, he's talking about the cup, that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. 
And again, we, we think, well, surely this is going to be the end of the story. And then we're thrown this event where uh, Joseph doesn't reveal his identity, but instead sends his brothers off back to Canaan with their grain. But before he sends them off, he gets his steward to place a, uh, basically set his brothers up, set Benjamin up by putting this expensive and precious silver cup in Benjamin's sack and then without the brothers knowing and then sending the brothers off. And then he sends his steward after them, after they've only gone a short distance, to then go and find them and accuse them of stealing. This is, without any shadow of a doubt, an absolutely brilliant move by Joseph. Now, it may not be morally right, it may not be a good thing to do. In fact, the author gives us absolutely no indication. It's one of those times that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where it's just ambiguous as to what Joseph's motivations were. Was he acting out of good? Was he acting out of evil? We don't know, but that's not what this is about. This is about the brothers and what God is doing in them. But this is a seriously crafty act from Joseph. It is, it is brilliant in its, in its intelligence. What Joseph is doing is he is setting up a test for these brothers that he doesn't want to reveal his identity to these brothers just yet. He doesn't yet know how much of these brothers really change. How different are they to the brothers that sold me off into slavery 22 years ago? And bearing in mind, Joseph has this pretty sweet life here in, in Egypt. He's got all of the money he could need. He is the, the master of all of the grain, literally the most precious resource that you could possibly have at this time. He's, he's got it all. Like he, he has got a lot to lose and potentially nothing to gain because he doesn't know what these brothers are like. And so he sets up this little test to see, have my brothers really changed? Can I really trust them? And so he sets them up, as we've seen it, and he sends the steward to go and catch up with them. And what happens is then when the steward accuses them, as you can imagine, the brothers just start to plead their innocence. They, they say, no, 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 why on earth would we steal? What, what, what would be our motivation for that? And we see then the extreme of it in verse nine, where they say, Which of you, whichever of your servants is found with it, the cup, shall die, is what the brothers say. They're basically, this is ancient speak for, uh, and a slightly more high stakes version of, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that you are going to find this cup in our sacks. We have definitely not taken it. And the steward then kind of just slightly tweaks those conditions in verse 10. He says, let it be as you say, he who is found with it, shall be my servant so not die but be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent and so he sets up these conditions and then as we go through the rest of the verses we see benjamin is found with the the, the cup in his sack we know that's going to happen and they all then go back to joseph's house and to, to plead innocence before joseph and joseph himself then again reasserts the conditions of, of the guilt. He says in verse 17, only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, the rest of the brothers, go up in peace to your father. And this is the brilliance of it. This is the, the ingenuity of Joseph's plan. That what he has done here is he has almost exactly recreated the situation where the brothers sold him off into slavery 22 years ago. Benjamin, just like Joseph in this situation, is completely innocent. And the narrative so far has worked to show us that essentially Benjamin is the replacement Joseph for Jacob the father. 
And it is now the same 10 brothers that sold Joseph into slavery that now face this decision before Joseph. That Joseph is saying, look, you can all go off completely innocent. All you have to do is leave Benjamin here. But they know that Benjamin is innocent. And the difference here is that before, the brothers had to actively conspire and work evil in their hearts to, to then set Joseph up and bump him off and sell him into slavery. And then had to come up with an elaborate cover-up, which they had to live with for 22 years. Here, Joseph is just presenting them with the easiest and most guilt-free option to sell their brother off into slavery. And just, it's, it's there on a the plate for them that they could betray another one of their brothers. And we're set up with all of this and think, how are the brothers going to respond? And in verse 18, Judah then comes to the fore, one of the brothers. And the main body of the text that then comes forth is what, we, what is known as Judah's speech. Uh, and it's the, he requests a chat with Joseph and then has a private moment with him where he then goes on what is the longest speech in the whole of the Old Testament. And if we were just to read it out, we would think on the surface, that is just a kind of fairly detailed recounting of previous encounters that they've had with Joseph. But this is a, a speech that is revered by many scholars of the Old Testament. One would say that it is the finest specimen of dignified and persuasive eloquence in the whole of the Old Testament. Another says that it is a speech of singular pathos and beauty. And it is the pathos of this, this speech that stands out to me, the emotion of it, the bringing to the surface of emotion that is the most defining mark of this speech that Judah makes. Because just going back in time a little bit, when we first meet Judah, he is this callous, cold-hearted, selfish man. That the, the very first thing that we see him do is he is the ringleader of selling his younger brother Joseph into slavery. And in case we just think, oh, well, maybe that was just a bit of a one-off incident. Like, little brothers, they are kind of annoying. And who hasn't, in a just a moment of weakness, accidentally sold off their younger brother into 20, year, 20 years of slavery into a foreign nation. I mean, it could happen to anybody. In case we think that might be the case, what happens immediately after is that this man who then masterminded the selling off of Joseph then goes with his other brothers before their father and just lies about the whole thing and sees their own father ripped apart by thinking that his youngest son or his, his favoured son is dead. And they just stand there, emotionless, dispassionate, as they see their father just getting ripped to shreds. And now, in this speech, it is compassion for his father that comes right through in what Judah says. We're going to look at it on the slides if we can have those up, Alex. Just look at this. So here's the, here's the text. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all through and you don't need to be able to read it through. Um, but here is Judah's speech. And look at now how many times he says the word father. We're just going to highlight it. Look at that. 15 times in 16 verses, Judah says the word father in his speech. Now, in case you're wondering, this is not normal. 
if you were to say, if I was to chat with you and just be in a conversation and was to mention someone else's name with this regularity, you would probably just start to back away a little bit and think this guy is a little bit obsessed. But remember, what Jude is facing at the minute is the pressure is very much on him. And you know how sometimes when the pressure's on and uh, and you, you, you start kind of lose control a little bit of what comes out of your mouth. You're not quite as aware of what you're saying. And that's exactly what's coming on, happening here, that just what is inside of Judah is starting to flow out of him. And he just keeps mentioning father, father, father. And then just as we look at the next slide, what we see is in verses 19 through to 29 is just these repeated mentions. Again, if we were just to read it, we, we may, maybe we wouldn't pick these up, but these repeated mentions, he's, he is recounting events, but now he is, he's doing it in a way that really pleads Jacob's case. There's repeated references in, in old and, uh, and saying the brother's dead and his father loves him and his father would die. These are repeated references to the, the, the fragility that Jacob is facing, his emotional state, his, his vulnerability as an older man. And before, Judah was almost in a chilling way detached from his father's pain. But here as he, as he brings these to light to Joseph, he, he's, you can see he's fully entered into and is feeling in an empathetic way his father's pain. And if there was one verse that would really sum this up, it would be verse 30 as we move on. But here we see it as exemplified almost just in one verse. But he starts off by saying, my father. Notice how he's saying my father, even though all his brothers are there. But very, very few times does he say our father in the passage, but mostly he's saying my father and personalising it. And then he, he moves on to say his life is bound up in Benjamin's life, in the boy's life saying that his, this man, it, the, the, the kind of the sense of that is that they share a same heartbeat. His life is, is inseparable from Benjamin's. You can't take Benjamin because of what might happen to my father. And that's how he goes on and says, he will die. His, he will bring his gray hairs of your servant down to Sheol. And then verse 34, just that little bit where he says, I fear the evil that will happen to him. That Judah is really feeling on his father's behalf exactly the, 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 the pain and the torment and the suffering that could come about for him if Benjamin were to be taken from him. And now he's coming before Joseph and he's basically saying, he's, he's pleading, he's saying, Look, I will do anything if you will just spare my father, if you will show mercy. He's from the depth of his soul, he's just saying, please, please take me instead. This is a complete and total transformation of character for Judah. One scholar says that it is from the subnormal to the abnormal show of compassion for Judah, which I think is a fairly fair reflection. I think it's really interesting to note where this comes from. Gordon, uh, Gordon Wenham, who's a, another scholar, said that except for the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, there is no more moving example of true contrition and repentance to be found in scripture. No more moving example of contrition and repentance apart from one example in the New Testament, which is a parable. And that is exactly what is going on here, that there is true repentance at work in Judah's heart. That this transformation 
is coming about through repentance. Notice verse 16 where he comes before Joseph and says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. That all Judah does here is he comes before Joseph and he's coming before God with a contrite and broken heart. We can often think, where, where does growth in God really come from? How can we see progress in him? Well, here we just see that it is raw honesty from Judah, raw honesty about himself. I am guilty. And again, the mention of the word God that had not been on the brother's lips until very recently, again, just saying God has found out my guilt. Coming before God, owning his weakness, owning his failings. And just see when someone does that, when we uh, when when people come before God saying, I am weak, I am broken. Just look what God can do with someone. Just look at the results. There's a lot of emphasis at the moment in, in culture of kind of um, wanting to see progress, wanting to see inner transformation, wanting to see growth. And I just think the language of that is really interesting. Often it's, it's rooted in just finding and discovering the true you or finding your inner self. Um, and the idea being if we, if we look inside, if we are able to, the, the good is inside of us. And we basically just need to kind of shed off all of the bad and discover the good that is hiding within. And if we can access that, then we truly will grow. We truly will become a better person and we'll experience a transformation, something like what Judah is going through here. But I just think it's really interesting. And I think we mustn't miss the link that's going on here, that this is one of the most repentant people that we will see in the whole of scripture. And they have just gone undergone one of the greatest transformations of character that you will ever see in scripture. That I, I personally just find this very, very hard to really get hold of and live out. That I, I notice in myself that I am a product of the, my own culture. And uh, during lockdown life, one of the things that I've noticed about myself, I don't know if you've seen this in, in yourself, but I've just become much more irritable um, and just a bit tetchy with Hannah, my wife and my two kids that I'm just much more easily irritable and things that shouldn't wind me up are, are getting to me. Um, and I was, uh, I was having a little think about this the other night and just before I went to sleep, I was just thinking, I, I really wish that I was a much more patient person. I really wish that I, I was more loving. Um, I, I wish that I could change. And I found myself then, my immediate thought after that is, oh, when I wake up tomorrow, I just have to try to be a bit more patient. I will just try and, and be a bit more loving. I'll just be a bit more intentional about it. And you see how easy it is just how to, to think, oh, well, there must be something inside of me. I just need to sort of access that, that loving and patient power within myself. And if I just try hard enough, I'll be able to do it. But here we see that that is just not the way to, that, that leads to lasting life change. That the, the way that we see the lasting godly growth and transformation that we long for is this heart posture that Judah takes on that we just come before God and say, God, I know that I am broken. I know that I need help. I know that I don't have it all, that there isn't the, the patience and the love in my own heart that I need to kind of extra, uh, extract and go deep and try and get it out of myself. 
but it's about coming before God just as Judah did and saying, God, I can't do it. I don't have it. Please help me be a better, more loving man, a better, more patient man. I can't do it on my own. I need your help. And there is nothing in this speech then that expresses the, the depth of the transformation that Judah has gone on and, and the intense love that he feels for his father, quite like verses 33 and 34, the climactic moment of his speech. Without these verses, it would be a fine speech, but it would just be all talk. But here in verses 33 and 34, we see the real high point of what he expresses. He says to Joseph, now therefore, please let your servant remain. So he's talking about himself. He says, let me remain instead of the boy. So instead of Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He's saying to, to Joseph, look, I know Benjamin is guilty before you, but please take me instead. For the sake of my father, to, to spare my father's suffering and torment, please, would you take me instead? Would I be the one that is seen guilty? That essentially what he's saying to Joseph is, in taking Benjamin, you are sentencing my father to, to, to torment and suffering that I cannot bear him to see. Please, would you allow me to be seen as the guilty one? For the sake of my father, for, for, my, for Jacob to be set free from this suffering, would you take me instead? And we see that this love that, jo that, that Judah is, is expressing in his speech is not just something that he is feeling, but it is a love that is willing to lead to action. A stunning act of sacrificial love on Judah's behalf. And there's something about love that puts itself in the place of another that I think just really resonates with our soul. At, at the minute we're seeing, and, and we've all been moved by, these stories of, of NHS staff that have um, sadly and tragically died as they have gone in knowing the risks and knowing that they are putting their own lives at danger, in danger and serving other people that they might come to health and in the line of, of that work than themselves dying. And I think that the, the reason that it really resonates with our soul is that it's just so clear to us what the cost is to that person. What more precious thing could they give than their life? What else do they have to give? What could be a higher thing to sacrifice? And as we look at Judah, I think we can we too can get into his world and think of the cost to him. Judah is he's he's a man that has has family back home. He's a man that has a home that he's worked hard to create. He's got people that love him and people that he loves. He's a man like any other man. He's got hopes and dreams for the future. He actually stands to inherit the promises of God, which mean that his name is going to go down in the history of Israel for all time as one of the tribal leaders. He doesn't yet know this, but he knows that he stands to inherit profound promises from God. And yet here he is condemning, he's letting go of all of that and condemning himself to the life of a slave. This is not a logical decision for Judah to make. His father, who he's doing this on behalf of, he's an old man. He's soon to die. 
And Judah has much of his life ahead of him. It doesn't make sense. But Judah here is motivated by something far greater than, uh, than just careful thinking. He's motivated by something that is far more transcendent than, than just cost-benefit analysis and probabilities and chance. We see here that, motiv that Judah is motivated by this singular desire of he sees and, and so feels the, the pain that his father is about to walk into. He sees the suffering that is about to become him. And he says, look, I do not care what it is going to take. I do not care what it costs. I don't know. I, I don't. It doesn't matter to me what might happen to me. I will just put myself down and throw myself in front of the pain that my father is about to take so that he does not have to face it, so that he might be spared and his life might be restored. I don't care the cost. Please just take me instead. And the transformation of Judah is really laid bare for us here that previously he was we saw him forcing one of his brothers into a life of slavery and now he is willingly acting and, and choosing to take on a life of slavery to spare another brother from slavery that i i think here as the readers we are just to, to sit back and just to marvel at this beauty and the purity of and even the holiness of what it is that Judah is doing here for his brother. That this truly is the greatest act of love imaginable. These are the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. That in Judah here we see the love of Christ being expressed. That Judah here is living out the life of Jesus Christ, living out the love of Jesus Christ. That the greatest gift and the greatest invitation that we find here within Genesis chapter 44 is for us to sit back and gaze and marvel once again at the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus just like Judah, came at great cost. For Judah, his cost was giving up his dreams, giving up his family, giving up his home. But for Jesus, the cost was far greater. Jesus gave up relationship as well, perfect relationship with his father in heaven, the riches of heaven. But more than all of those things, Jesus gave up his godliness. He emptied himself of his godliness in order to become man but jesus's cost is not just in what he gave up but also what he takes up just like jesus he 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 gave up himself just like judah jesus gave up himself and willingly took on not slavery but in jesus's case he took on death and not just death, but this is so important for us to see and to know, but Jesus took on death on a cross. And this is something that we don't tend to want to reflect on, don't tend to want to dwell on, but the death of Jesus Christ on a cross is so important for us to know. That Jesus willingly bore the curse of the cross. This mode of execution that was meant to maximise brutality, meant to maximise pain for its victim. But most of all, it was meant to maximise shame and degradation. 
that the Roman instrument of the cross was to, to strip its victim of all humanity, that those that went through it were, were seen as objects that were subhuman, that were subjected to, to the greatest shaming in a public space, so that those that would look on them would mock them and say, that person isn't even worthy of being called a human. Those that were crucified were stripped of even their humanity and their dignity. And we see the journey that Jesus goes on is from the very godliness of heaven to the sheer godlessness of the cross. I think, why did he do it? Why did Jesus do that? Why did he take on so much pain and so much shame? Well, just like Judah saw his father and saw the pain and the suffering and the torment that he was about to walk into. And just as Judah said, I will do anything to stop my loved one facing that and having to endure it. I will do anything to be able to redeem him and lift him out of that possible place. So Jesus saw us and saw the pain and the suffering and the torment that we were going towards. And so Jesus said, I will do anything. I will walk through anything in order to stop that happening. I will give up. I don't, don't care what the cost is. I don't care what it might, might mean for me. I will endure anything in order to save my loved ones from that, in order to lift them into a better place. As I've been going on my walks, and as I'm sure you have as well, you, I've seen various different sentiments expressed on people's windows, seen different messages like stay positive and we're all doing this together. And one that I've seen quite commonly is you are loved, which is just a great sentiment, isn't it? It's very encouraging to see it. And, uh, but one of the difficulties I think with it is that it's, it's quite challenging when you kind of try and dig beneath it to think to, for that to really feel real. To work out, okay, if I am loved, who loves me? And how much? And, and what does that actually mean for me? Well, here it is. That here we see that the love of God is not just something that is felt. Not just some abstract emotion just out there somewhere in the universe. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us an expression of the raw, the expression of the raw reality of God's love for us. In all of its tangibleness, in all of its grittiness, in all of its messiness, the real love of God for us. In the, the horror and the beauty of it, we see the real love of God expressed in a tangible way. We see the pure, unfiltered, vast, perfect love of God made known. That Jesus went to a cross so that we could know that the love of God is real. That it is not just a sentiment, it's not just something out there, but it is real and it has happened and it is done. And it is something that we can receive and it is something for us. And it is a gift that we can have. He did it and it is, it's something that happened in the past. It's something that has already taken place. So it's not something we have to work for, not something we have to earn, not something we have to strive for, but something that we just have to receive, something that has been given to us. He did it so that we would know his love, that we would be able to know him, so that we would then be able to rejoice, we'd be able to celebrate, we'd be able to 
just drink in the real love of God for us, made real, made tangible, made accessible, that we could reflect on it and see it. This love has happened, this love is happening, and this love will happen. We're going to sing about and just reflect on this love in just a moment. But this great sacrificial act of love by Judah then opens the door to all that comes next. The real climax as we enter into chapter 45. The next words that we read are, then Joseph. That everything that then flows out from this moment proceeds from the act of Judah's self-giving sacrificial love. Judah's act of love, it, it was no strategic thing. He wasn't trying to make something happen as a result of it. It just came out of his love for his father. But it turns out to be a catalytic event, uh, an act that heals the bonds of family, an act that brings restoration and restitution in his family, and an act that brings about a formation of God's people. And that's what we'll begin to see from next week. But for now, I just want us to reflect on and enjoy and, and think about this pure love of God that we can now know because it is expressed through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to sing together. I've asked Rob to prepare a song that just beautifully spells out what it is that Jesus has done for us and how this shows us God, this love is real. God really does love us in the way that he say, says he does. So Rob, over to you, we're gonna sing.